0: For decades and decades, the leadership of the United Auto Workers have come from this one same group within the union. That changed in a big way with this month's union elections.
1: Not a single incumbent from the leadership won a competitive race.
0: So what does this mean for one of the country's largest labor unions at a time when the auto industry is going through a massive shift? This is Stateside. I'm April Baer. In the past few years, Many players within the auto industry signal that they're going all in on electrification. And that leaves this new UAW leadership with a huge job on their hands, preserving jobs while the industry changes. Daniel House is senior editor and business columnist for The Detroit News. He's been covering the UAW and its relationship with the automakers for decades. He told us the shift in power at the union is no small thing.
1: It's pretty, it's pretty remarkable, uh, frankly, uh, this election. Uh, we're, we're looking at a sea change here. We're looking at uh, the Ruther Administrative Caucus, as it was known, that controlled the union, at least since World War II, uh, is on the outside looking in. Uh, and you have a new crop of leaders that are promising more confrontation from the union with the auto companies, which are, I think should be very interesting at a time, uh, which is a real pivot to electrification. And it's real now. I mean, not only are they making investments, they're producing product uh, and uh, it's heading out to the showrooms. And I think we're, we're going to continue to see a transformation in, in the powertrain side of the business and uh, as well as the batteries that drive those powertrains and where those investments are going to be made. And I can tell you they're not all going to be made in Michigan, as we've seen so far.
0: Can you lay out for folks who haven't been following this closely how the most recent election was different procedurally than in last year's?
1: Well, historically, the UAW has elected its international leaders, and they call it international, the meaning of the international executive board, which is the about fourteen or fifteen people, including the president and treasurer uh, secretary of treasurer, who run the union. Uh, historically, those were done at a convention that uh, and, and elected by convention delegates. So typically, uh, the Ruther Administrative Caucus was able to essentially handpick the people that were then backed by delegates at the convention. And the low people and the locals were electing those delegates to represent them. And I think of it kind of as like a Congress, so to speak. Right. Uh, what's happened now is, as a result of the outgrowth of the, the settlement with the federal government over the corruption investigation... The UAW went to what are known as direct elections. One person, one vote. Uh, They sent out a million uh, ballots to active members as well as retirees across the union. It wasn't just autos. I mean, it was everybody, people representing academics in, in California and state workers in Lansing and, you know, across the country. And they only got back 11% of the ballots.
0: You know, I was absolutely flabbergasted to read that in your column, although maybe I shouldn't have been. What gives with the low turnout?
1: Well, great question. I mean, you talk to experts, they say, oh, this is kind of standard. Uh, But I I mean, I I have to take their word for it. Uh, You would have thought, I think, because of a corruption and there might be a little bit more motivation to vote. Uh, There were a lot of people who complained to us and on message boards and other things that they didn't um, get their ballot or they didn't know about it. Clearly, uh, the media coverage has been uneven on this. We at the Detroit News have been very focused on it for a long time. I can tell you because we keep track of the competition, a lot of the competition, both nationally and regionally, has been a lot less interested. So uh, I can't explain why that is, but th- to me, this is a foundational institution of the modern American auto industry. It uh, represents the people that work on the factory floor. It's not an insignificant institution, uh, and certainly not to those of us in Michigan or right. in the industrial heartland. So the result is you had a minority of the, of the majority electing these people, and you had a very motivated group called Members United um, that were reformers, and, you know, as you see in po- politics, you know, sometimes when you have a small amount of people turning out and you have multiple candidates, all you need is some motivated people and they'd break right through. And That's what happened. Yeah. <laughs> uh, they broke through and um, they're on track probably to potentially getting even their guy elected president against Ray Curry. But we're going into these negotiations, which I think are going to be critical to the future of, uh, of the industry. It will define really the role that the UAW and its members are going to play in electrification, particularly in battery production and electric motor production. Vehicle production is really not as impacted so much. But I think the thing I'm always looking for is when they announce new investments, are they investing, making electrification investments in traditional engine and transmission plants? Those are located predominantly in the Midwest.
0: I mean, I it's, it's not hard to understand that that is something that the rank and file would, you know, would be concerned about and would want to be asking their leadership for. But do you have any more fine grained understanding of, you know, what would be good for union members in this process? I mean, is it down to like specific plants that might or might not be represented or how how far down the line does this go?
1: Well, it can get pretty granular. I mean, we just this last week, uh, Stellantis announced that they are going to idle, which is a very important word. They're going to idle um, their Belvedere plant in Illinois, making the Jeep Cherokee compact right. SUV. Now, idling is special word under the in contract language, and it means that the plant will not be producing vehicles, but it will not be, and it also doesn't have a new one to produce but it's also not shut down. That makes sense? Yeah. So so in, it can't be shut down absent negotiations between the union and the company. So what I, what I think we should interpret this, if you're a worker in a Belvedere, you're saying, okay, I don't have a job now going forward because we're idled after the wind down. Um, so the real critical question is, are our bargainers, these new people, by the way, that we've just elected, and we don't know anything about a lot of these people, Uh, They're going to have to negotiate with the company in the in the negotiations to actually get us a product, which is a new lease on life. Right. Which is those products can be those life cycles can be three to seven years long, at least one contract, probably more than one contract. So and then to give you another example, uh, Ford has an engine plant in Romeo, Michigan, that in the 2019 negotiations, they negotiated the closure of so this plan is now winding down and macomb county politicians uh at both the county and state level are hoping that they can get forward to reverse itself in the next negotiations and put an electrification investment in romeo and save the romeo plan so when you're on an idle status that means you're not dead yet (laughs) but uh you could be And, and and so that's the way that works uh and so I think those are those are examples about why you go into negotiations. And what members are often looking for is assurances and investments in their plan that they can get to retirement or, or they can get to some, you know, those extra five years that they want to get in or, or whatever the case may be.
0: It's time for a short break. We'll have more with Daniel House in just a minute.
1: Support for Michigan Public's stateside podcast comes from Lake Trust Credit Union, working to empower financial well-being for Michigan consumers, businesses, and communities. Committed to financial solutions and advice to support people and families. More information at laketrust.org.
0: Support for the stateside podcast comes from Kalamazoo College, offering a personalized education that combines critical thinking, curiosity, and creativity. Committed to preparing students for meaningful careers that make a positive impact on the world. More at kzoo.edu. Dan, while we have you, I have a a sort of legislative-specific question for you. The elections that all Michiganders took part (laughs) in— in November, brought us uh, majorities in the state House and Senate for Democrats and the reelection of Democratic Mm -hmm. Governor Gretchen Whitmer. Do you think there's a chance we'll see a repeal of Michigan's right to work law next year?
1: Great question. Well, rhetorically, I think the answer would be yes, because rhetorically, uh, the Democratic incoming Democratic majorities in the legislature uh, are are clearly, uh, that's at the top of their list, as a priority Um, I wouldn't be surprised to see it happen we at the Detroit News have been looking at some of these issues uh, actually right now in real time because we expect that this is probably going to happen um, in some way shape or form and it's interesting to note how this has happened around the country you know in Ohio back in about 2011 I think it was uh, the the Republicans had supermajorities in the legislature Uh, passed legislation to make Ohio a right-to-work state. And within months, uh, the labor-friendly forces got a ballot question on the ballot for the November ballot, and the Ohio voters repealed it. So Ohio was a a right-to-work state for less than a year. So they are not a right-to-work state, and yet they are attracting enormous investments yeah. Intel is investing $20 billion in central Ohio. Honda continues to reinvest also a, a historically non-union company, uh, is investing uh, in a lot of electric vehicle, in, uh, uh, operations down in Ohio. And there are other examples. Um, so the question really becomes, does it make a whole lot of difference or are there other issues that are, that are far more important, uh, and I, and I raise this, I'm asking two questions. One is, it, is, it, it's, is it ideological or is it uh, business? Well,
0: what is your takeaway from that? I mean, if you were, you know, if, if someone in the Whitmer administration came to you and said, you know, what really gets manufacturers' attention in terms of business incentives? Is it necessarily just, if it's not right to work, what is it?
1: Well, it's a lot of the competitive sets. Do you have the land? Do you have land that's big enough? You know, there's all this hand-wringing about why Ford went to Tennessee and Kentucky. And the reality was, is that out of the gate, Michigan uh, didn't have a a site. They didn't have a nearly big enough site to do what Ford wanted to do in Michigan, nor did they have top line competitive uh, utility rates. They basically were disqualified from the jump. So, I mean, you're looking at sites, you're looking at utility rates and power, other kinds of services, location. Um, are you on a, if you look at us on a map, uh, we're not the crossroads of America. You know, we've got highways that go across the South Southern part. We've got 75 that goes up and dies at the at Sault Ste. Marie. We're not like an Indiana or, or a Tennessee that is kind of a crossroads for, for, for transportation. So there's a whole lot of analysis that goes into these things. And it's, it never, you talk to economic developers, they will tell you it's never one thing. It's never like, Oh, you're not a right-to-work state. We're not coming. Now, are there companies that are like that? Sure, there are. Uh, but, But a lot of them are making a lot more sophisticated analysis. There's also a political analysis. You know, if I'm Toyota and I go to Kentucky or I go to, even better, Alabama or Mississippi or Georgia or whatever... Uh, where there isn't a uaw presence or there isn't a big three presence what do i get i get the political support of the entire delegation of that state if i go to if i'm toyota and i invest in michigan do you really think gary peters and debbie Stabenow are going to give me all their undivided attention politically probably not so i mean politics are part of it as well so there's a whole host of of elements that go into it and uh that, all that being said, I th- is there a warning are there warning shots for, for the industry here Yeah I think there are. It's becoming increasingly tech driven technology driven and it needs the talent to and it needs to be able to hire that talent and a lot of that talent is being is, is frankly imported from outside the state because the state's not producing the talent and that if you talk to business people they'll tell you that is their single biggest concern is that Michigan is not producing enough technology talent to feed the pipeline that the likes of Stellantis, GM, Ford's major suppliers are going to want and need in the coming decade or so.
0: Daniel House of the Detroit News. He is not a consultant to lawmakers who are looking for business friendliness, but you can learn a lot by reading his column. Dan, it's a pleasure. Thank you. You bet. Thank you. And that's the stateside podcast for today. I'm April Baer. You can find full stateside episodes, including more automotive news, ready for streaming at michiganradio.org. Today's pod was produced by April Van Buren. Other producers on our show are Mike Blank, Mercedes Mejia, and Ronia Kabansak. Our podcast producer is Rachel Ishikawa. Our executive producer is Laura Weber Davis. Music for the podcast comes from Blue Dot Sessions. Thank you so much for listening. We'll see you next time. Bye-bye.